Heavenly Father, as we come into this moment now where we hear from your word, we come needy for your Holy Spirit to work in wonderful ways, that the word would live to us, the word on, on this page would live to us in our hearts. We'd be amazed by the goodness of this message and that you've given to us, we pray. So help us by your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the context of this passage, we have to go, I think, a fair way back. That is biblically. We've got to go a fair way back in the Bible, and we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the story of humanity begins in a garden. It's a garden where they know nothing of death. It's hard to even conceive now, is it? A, a place where they, they knew nothing of death. Although, notice from very early on, there was the threat of death. So they're in the garden and it's almost like life and death is put before Adam and Eve. Which way will you go? Life represented by the tree of life. If they would obey God, do his commands, then they would, inherit, they would get to eat of the tree of life and live forever. They would get the rewards. Although, it says also, if they choose to eat of the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And we know that, if you know, well, you look around in the world, what did they choose? They chose death. And so they are removed from the garden, God says in in Genesis 3.22, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So instead of life, God says, what, they, what do they get? He declares, you are of dust and to dust you shall return. And so it began. For every human that's lived since, death and dust. Over and over and over again. It's like if death could speak, if you could personify death, death might say to us, oh yeah, you can try your anti-aging creams, you can put on your moisturizers, you can wear your sunscreen and your hats, and you can exercise, and you can go keto, and you can go, you know, you can diet, you can do whatever you like, but you are delaying the inevitable. I will get you. And that's how the story unfolds in the Bible. The very next chapter, chapter 4, there is murder. Cain kills Abel. I think chapter 5 of Genesis is one of the most harrowing chapters in all the Bible. We, we skip over it because it's a, a genealogy, but really it's a, it's a list of people dying. Let me just read a little bit of it and you'll get the sense of that pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 5 verse 4 says this, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam were lived were 930 years And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. 
When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And on and on and on it goes. And he died. And he died. And he died. It's like death literally gets the last word after all of that. What's striking about that to me, I think, is that it's kind of redundant. If you say someone lived for that many years, you kind of know, okay, it ended, right? They, they died. But the point, I think it's a sermon, I think it's preaching to us. It's preaching to us the message that death has entered the world and to dust they returned, and to dust they returned, death and dust, over and over and over again. Everyone. Although except, except one, Right? Enoch, there's one exception, Enoch gets taken up to God and he didn't die. Mitchell Chase writes about that, he says, this rapturous report is a light of hope against the dark backdrop of the dead. If God could deliver someone before death, could he deliver someone after death? If the God of life could disrupt the rhythm of death that permeated the generations of Genesis 5, what else could he do? And so you walk away from the early chapters of Genesis, um, I think, when it comes to death with a couple things in your mind. First of all, it just seems very, very normal. Like the normalcy of death. I remember hearing John Piper say that history is a conveyor belt of corpses. It just seems normal. But you also walk away feeling like, and this is not how it's meant to be. Though, Though it is normal... It wasn't meant to be like this. There's something wrong about it. I, I, if you've been, most people have been to funerals, multiples of them, and I don't know about you. I, I think I sense both of the, I sense both of those things when I'm in a funeral. Like one, this happens a lot, right? And like this happens to everyone. This is normal. Uh, one author said, "No one gets out of death, out of life alive." So it's normal, but you also have a sense, don't you? This is wrong. Like, this is not how it's meant to be. Right? Not in the sense that, like, this is wrong, I don't like this. I wish it wasn't like this. But actually, in the deeper sense, this, was, this is not how things ought to be. People ought not to be separated like this. Well, that's what Genesis teaches us. So that brings us into our narrative in front of us this morning. We pick up in the aftermath of another death. It's the death of the Lord Jesus. You might think, well, here's another person that's died. Right? If ever there was a sense of like, this is wrong, right? this death is wrong, it would have to be the Lord Jesus. Pilate himself, if you read the, through the, the, the chapters previous, has been saying over and over, this is an innocent man. I find no guilt in this man. Right? This is wrong. This is wrong also for the disciples. He was meant to be the Messiah. So our passage begins like this. It says, verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. 
So Joseph of Arimathea, he comes up in all four of the Gospels at this point. And we know from the, the other Gospels that he, is, he was part of the Sanhedrin, that he's a wealthy man, and that he was someone who was seeking and looking for the kingdom of God. And John tells us here that he was actually a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus, but notice he was a secret follower of Jesus. He was following, but he didn't want anybody to know. John actually talks about people like this back in chapter 12 of John. Let me read this. John 12, 42, John writes this. He says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. They believed in Jesus, even the religious authorities. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, and he gives the reason, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So it just seems like, oh, things are changing for Joseph of Arimathea. And I just wonder if, he, if, the, if he's, he's witnessed things over the past 24 hours that have just changed the dynamics for him. He has seen his peers, the people that he fears, John says, he, for fear of the Jews, he was secret. He saw them screaming for the blood of Jesus, who it says he was a follower of. He was a disciple of him, but secretly. And he sees his peers screaming for the, the blood of an innocent man. He sees the behavior of Jesus and the way he walked through all of that. And I just wonder if he began to think, why do I care about their glory more than the glory of God? And so he separates himself from them. And he goes to care for the body of Jesus. The body that they all wanted dead, beaten. He goes to care for it. Then verse 39, Nicodemus also says, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So Nicodemus is another religious leader. And John says, and I've mentioned him before, like he explicitly says, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. This is not just like another Nicodemus, like that was a popular name. Oh, is it the same Nicodemus? No, it's the same. John's like, no, it's the same one. Remember? And he came, John says, by night. Do you remember from chapter 3? If you're reading the story, he came by night, night and day, light and dark. In John's gospel are metaphors often, pictures. It's a picture of him coming to Jesus in chapter 3 in total ignorance. He didn't have a clue what was going on. Jesus said, you have to be born again. He had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Like, I got to be born, like literally born again. Like, like in darkness, spiritually, physically, he's there at night. But when does he come to this time? In broad daylight. Things are changing. So Joseph takes care of the legal matters, caring, securing the body. Nicodemus takes care of the ceremonial matters. But they're caring for the body of Jesus. How different is that? If you've been reading through John, you would notice the stark difference. The way Jesus' body has been treated in the past 24 hours compared to now after his death. Let's take care of him now. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a, a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So where is Jesus laid? A garden. Where did death first enter into the world? It was a garden. And you just wonder, 
in the plan, in the providence of God, could it be that death might be defeated in the same kind of place that death entered the world through sin? So chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, now he pause there and notice we just skipped a day. Right? We just went from Friday to Sunday. What happened to Saturday? Obviously not much did happen on Saturday. And I think that's, um, that's a big part of the point. Jesus was buried and he lay in the grave. Jesus didn't notice, come back to life almost immediately. You know, he died on the cross and then kind of came back to life and popped off the cross somehow. He didn't come back alive after they took him down from the cross and they were carrying him to the tomb and he came alive then. No, he was laid in a grave. Now that actually becomes an essential part of the gospel proclamation. So when, when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, let me, let me remind you brothers of what I, what, I, what, I gave, what I delivered to you. And he says, this is of first importance. Like, there's nothing more important than this. When I came to you, and this is what I declared to you. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Paul includes in, of first importance... Not just that he died or rose again, he was buried. The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, question 41, why was he buried? Answer, his burial testifies that he really died. He really died. How do you know? Because he was put into the place where you only put dead people. You know, there's no um, swoon theory here. You know, I don't know if you've heard of the swoon hypothesis um, it, it's had popularity in different times and, and I'm told it's popular in Islam as well where the idea is that Jesus didn't really die, right? He, he kind of swooned. He, got, he was unconscious, but he kind of came back. Well, I don't know. That seems hard. So what we're saying is he survived, obviously, the crucifixion. He survived what John said, the spear that was thrust into his side. He survived being taken down and wrapped up in cloth which would suffocate him he was put into a cold tomb no one tending to his wounds from the spear and from the whippings and lashings and he laid there for a couple days made his way out right and then convinced everybody not not no no not just that he'd recovered and he was doing a bit better but he actually had a resurrected new body wow I just kind of like it when critical scholars end up kind of coming up with even more impressive miracles to avoid believing in miracles. And I think that's what that is. No, he, what if this? What if? Bear with me. He was buried because he died. And that's where you put dead people. So that's Jesus Saturday. For the disciples, that Saturday must have been you imagine what that day must have been? A day of waiting, wondering, questions seeming without answers, like those silent Saturdays. Do you know what I mean by a silent Saturday where it seems like, is God answering? Is God there? I, I think perhaps you've experienced a silent Saturday where you're just filled with questions that seem without answers, sufferings, and loss of hope, and just loss of so much. I think part of the wonderful good news of this passage is because, because this day, this silent Saturday, didn't last forever, 
and neither will ours. So on the first day of the week, it says, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So now Mary Magdalene enters the scene. It hasn't been long since she was mentioned in John's Gospel. Actually, she was just mentioned at the end of the the chapter previous, where she was there at the cross at the end with a few other women and John, who wrote the Gospel. She was there. And now she's here. That she, of all people, is highlighted, honoured in this narrative, I think is both shocking and very wonderful. For one, she's a woman. In a day that the woman's testimony was worth nothing, was not considered relevant. Secondly, she was a sinful woman. Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. And so when she becomes the first witness of the resurrection, this is just a helpful thing. Like if you were going to make up this story, this is literally the last way you would make up the story if you wanted it to have some credibility, right? She's a woman. She's she's seen as very, very emotional. She's had demons in her previously. And yet she's the one. She's the first. It's amazing. One commentator writes this. It says this. She was last at his cross and first at his grave. She stayed longest there but was soonest here. She could not rest until she was up to seek him. She sought him while it was yet dark, even before she had light to seek him by. And remember, light and dark are metaphors often in John's gospel. And so I don't think it's an accident that John explicitly says she came and it was still dark. I think it's a picture that she also just doesn't, she has no idea what's going on yet. She's, she's coming in ignorance. She sees an empty tomb. She doesn't, we'll see, she doesn't really know what to do with that. But I think there's hope as well. Because it's the, it's the darkness before the dawn, if you like. She's come in early, but we know what happens to darkness when the sun breaks. And so the same thing, I think, will happen to Mary. So Mary arrives and, and it says, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So it's dark. She gets it, it's dark, but she can see that. The stone's gone. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So that's her conclusion. That's, that's, that's the way she interprets it. The stone is gone. They've taken him away. Grave robbers. A grave robber it was common enough that there were laws against it at the time and, and that's her conclusion. People have taken away our Lord. Then notice, they've taken him and we don't know where he is. We, us, who love him, his followers, who care about him. We have no idea where he is, but they've taken him. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, so that's John, and they're going toward the tomb. Now the next bit, people have often found pretty funny. I do find it kind of funny myself as well. Uh, that John includes it, because, um, and I don't blame him, I probably would, I would include it as well. But basically, he's like, I, I beat Peter to the tomb. That's basically kind of what he's wanting to get across. So he says, you know, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like, I wonder if Peter thinks, was that necessary? Was that, like, was that like super necessary to the narrative that that was included? Yeah, I think Peter probably was thinking at the time, well, at least no one's going to find out about that, it's just us. And John's like, everyone's going to find out. 
And I would like to be the one that organizes a rematch in heaven and just kind of line them up and go, all right, let's see who wins now with our resurrected bodies. Anyway, maybe I'll join the race. I'll probably lose. All right, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he, that is John, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So from outside, he can look in and he can stoop in and he can see Yeah, there's no body. There is linen cloth, though. So what does that rule out? That really does rule out grave robbers, doesn't it? Why would they undress the corpse before taking the corpse away? Why would they leave behind expensive linens and spices? But while he's processing all of that, Slowpoke Peter finally arrives. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter, that's, that's classic Peter, isn't it? What are you standing outside? I'm getting into the tomb, you know, get out of the way. What are you waiting around outside the tomb? Straight in, he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth that folded up, but, but folded up in a place by itself. We've been reading John's gospel. You remember that there was another resurrection, right? Lazarus, do you remember how he came out of the tomb? Remember what he was wearing? He's like all his gear on still, burial clothes. And Jesus had to say, let's, um, you know, let's change clothes. He doesn't need those clothes anymore. Although he, he does still need those clothes, actually, doesn't he? Like he will put those back on. Or someone will do it for him. Because he will die again. But not Jesus. He can leave those burial clothes in the tomb. He will never need them ever again. And they're left laying there in a, in a way that, that, that has a picture that Jesus' body just like passed through them, like vanished through them. It says in verse, six, verse 8, sorry, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in, finally goes in, and he saw and believed. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John goes in and it says he saw and he believed. What did he believe? He believed Jesus is alive again. There's enough. There's enough evidence there. He's like, I don't know how else to make sense of this situation other than he's alive again. But he makes a point. This wasn't based on scripture yet. He hadn't joined those dots that they actually, the Old Testament, we read from, from... you know, praise the Lord, that's a perfect passage from Psalm 16 this morning, which talks about, he will not let, leave me in Sheol. You know, let the, let the, uh, the body of the, his Holy One see decay. Words like words to that effect. Like there was hints that, that the resurrection is going to happen throughout the Old Testament. So, so when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that the, the gospel to them, he says, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. Talking about the Old Testament. Like that happened according to the Old Testament. It's just John didn't see that yet. All he had was an empty tomb with linen cloths. And he's like, he saw and he believed. Even today, people who are skeptical of Christianity have to deal with those same realities. The reality of an empty tomb. What will we do with the empty tomb? I remember going to a debate um, in a university in Melbourne uh, when I was living there. Uh, and, and it was a debate between a Christian and an atheist. And, and to, to be honest, I was, like, I was at the debate and I was like, is this Christian the best we had to send? Like, is this, because uh, 
this doesn't seem like it's going the way I expect. I was in my early 20s and didn't know any better, so it's probably an arrogance. But, the, the, you know, the, the atheist got up and he just, I mean, he sounded very, very smart, right? And he, he was, had all these kind of sophisticated academic questions and uh, philosophical wonderings and all of this kind of thing and and it was it was like okay that's that you know he, he he's coming for it and then and then the christian got up and and it didn't help that i recognized him from the local fruit shop i was like oh man we're sending the fruit shop guy anyway he got up and and he said and, and but basically he got up and he said yeah but what are you going to do about the empty tomb and i was like what is that how it works he's talking like academics and philosophy and you're like, yeah, but let's talk about the resurrection. What do you ma- how do you make sense of an empty tomb? I thought, really? But it strikes me now, that's, that's actually an excellent question. And the guy didn't really want to deal with that question. What will you do with the empty tomb? You can say maybe it wasn't empty. Okay. But then you have the apostles preaching about a resurrected body while the body is still in the tomb. Well, it's not really going to go anywhere. It is an amazing fact of history that belief in the resurrection of Jesus happened in the same place he was publicly crucified. The authorities who wanted to put an end to the whole Jesus movement, when, he tried, when they tried to change the narrative, they didn't say, no, the tomb's not empty. They just made up a different reason for it being empty. But no one questioned the the emptiness of the tomb. So they just said the disciples stole it. Okay, let's go with that. Why? What did it get the disciples? To steal the body and make all this up. They didn't get wealthy off it. They didn't get fame. They didn't get prestige in the world. No, they they got martyrdom. They got sufferings. It got them nowhere in the world, in worldly standards. And, I mean, if they made it up, well done. Because they made up the most convincing lie in the history of humanity. They have deceived billions of people. And whole civilizations have been founded on this. The lie of a few local guys from Galilee, hey? That's amazing. But it's almost, again, too amazing. Maybe part of why they all were willing to die for it and no one ever broke rank was because it was true. It happened. Verse 10, it says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. J.C. Ryle writes this, Of all the accounts of the appearances of our Lord after he rose from the dead, None perhaps is so affecting and touching as this. He that can read this simple story without a deep interest must have a very cold and unfeeling heart. Because you picture, Mary's pictured there outside the tomb, just weeping. Just heaving tears. Out of control sorrow. And she finally, it says stoops to look in. I wonder what motivated that. I just got to check again. Is this real? They've taken him. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white 
sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, you see, robbers have not done this, Mary. These are angels in the tomb. Verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? What a question. Surely they know. They're sitting in a tomb. You know, if you go visit the local Toowoomba Cemetery and there find someone weeping, you won't be like, oh, I wonder what they've got going on in their life. No, you, you put it together. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to go, it might be connected. Why are you weeping, Mary? I think it's the beginning of a correction for her. Do you need to be weeping, Mary? Must you be weeping? Perhaps you don't need actually to be weeping at all. But she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Do you notice? It's the same thing that she said to the disciples. Although this time, it's more personal. So instead, it's not just the Lord. She says, my Lord. Right? It's not... We do not know where they have laid him this time. It's, I do not know where they have laid him. But notice, she's still just thinking only in natural terms, naturalistic explanations for what has happened. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Jesus asked the same question as the angels, but then he goes a step further, doesn't he? He says, whom are you seeking? Why does he ask that? I wonder if it's similar to the reason you asked the first question. It's to get her to begin to think, yeah, who is it that I'm seeking? What what comes to your mind, Mary, when you think of... The one you're looking for in a grave. The one you're looking for in a tomb. What do you know of him? Oh, you mean the one that like fed 5,000 people? Him. You mean the one who told Lazarus to come out? The one who heals the sick? Who makes the blind see? Oh, him. Oh, you mean the one who said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or I am the resurrection and the life. Or I am the bread of life. Or if everyone comes to me, they can have living water. Is it the, is it the one who said, before Abraham was, I am. Who are you, whom are you seeking, Mary? Think. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? But she is still pretty lost. It says, supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's determined, isn't she? She's like, ask the angels, and they were no help at all. But maybe the gardener. Look, if you've you've done something, like if someone told you to move the body, or you've you've moved it, you just know anything, just, just honestly, just tell me, please just tell me, right? I'll take care of it. Like she says, I'll, I'll look after that. But just if you, please tell me. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, 
Mary. The gardener wouldn't know her name. And I don't think anyone ever said her name the way Jesus said her name. John 10 verse 3 says, The good shepherd calls, shepherd calls his sheep by name and leads them out. They know his voice. It says she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. You can imagine, I think, the look on her face, because obviously she's not facing Jesus at the time. And so she hears the word, her name, you know, Mary, just, you know, Rabbanai, <laughs> and just throws herself on him. But we know she does because soon Jesus is going to say, don't cling to me. It's like she just grabs him. Charles Spurgeon writes this. In thinking over this subject, I've come to the conclusion that Mary Magdalene was selected to see Christ first because she loved him most. John loved Jesus much, but Mary loved him more. John looked into the empty sepulcher and then went away home. But Mary stood there and wept until her risen Lord appeared to her. And so Spurgeon concludes, You see then that there is much sweetness, far more than I can tell you, in the thought that Mary Magdalene was the first person who was chosen to see the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. It is amazing, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus could have revealed himself to anyone first, like anyone. He could have gone to Pilate. That would have been, that would have been something, right? Caesar, you know, or the Jewish leaders who bade for his blood. He could have rocked up to there. He could have gone to the, the apostles, but he goes to Mary. Mary. Mary of Magdalene. Why? That doesn't make any sense in worldly terms. But then actually, it just makes all the sense in the world because of the character of God. She's the most broken, she's the most sad. She's the most wounded. She's the most confused. So he goes to Mary. Blessed are those who weep, for they shall be comforted. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now that sound might sound abrupt, but it's actually full of wonderful comforts. Mary has thrown herself onto Jesus. Like, just clinging to it, maybe around his legs and just holding on. And everything in her feels like, I am never, ever, ever going to let go again. This is not, the only way that I can be okay from now on is if I'm, I'm always by his side and, I, and he never, ever, ever leaves. And Jesus says to her, first of all, I'm, you don't need to cling to me. I'm not ascending to the Father right now. We have time. But I also have a job for you to do. Jesus says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What a message she has to share. First part of the message is, I am ascending. I am ascending, which is good news for them. It actually is very good news for them. Jesus spent the, 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 that last supper, that, 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 that night in the upper room from chapters 13 all the way to chapter 17, preparing for them for the time where he would depart from them both at the cross and ascending to the Father. And he, if, if they were listening at all, they ought to remember, oh, that's actually really, really good news for us. Things like Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. The Father will send you the Holy Spirit. Or greater things you will do because I am going back to the Father. Or you should rejoice, Jesus says, that I am going to the Father. So that's good news. The other part of the message is the amount of grace that Jesus is, is showing the disciples in this moment. Remember, remember what's happened, right? Between the, 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 the time that they spent in that upper room and then Jesus is betrayed and all that's happened, it's been nothing but failure from the disciples. Like abject failure. One left early to betray him. One has denied knowing him three times. And the rest just abandoned, fled, ran away. And Jesus says to Mary, go and tell my brothers. You know, before, in, in the upper room, Jesus called, do you remember what he called them? You know what he called them? Friends. That must have been the sweetest thing in the world when Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Right, because I've shared with you the plans of the Father. You are friends. Oh, but a lot's happened since then. They've denied, there's been betrayal, they've abandoned what will Jesus call them, you wonder? He called them friend. What will he call them after all of that? Spurgeon again says this. We see that the, the blacker was their sin, the stronger was his love. The more defiled they were, the more sweetly did he talk to them. He actually went from friend to brothers. There's the grace of the Lord Jesus for you. Notice where he says that he's going. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. You brothers, in your failure, you are included into the community of the triune fellowship of God. It's actually the climax of a theme in John's Gospel. So often it's been describing Jesus' relationship to the Father as his Father, I'm the Son. And this for the first time in John's Gospel, he says, actually, you realise he's your Father too. He's your Father too. J.C. Ryle again writes this to his readers. He says, let us leave the passage with the comfortable reflection that Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As he dealt with his erring disciples in the morning of his resurrection, so will he deal with all who believe and love him until he comes again. When we wander out of the way, he will bring us back. When we fall, he will raise us again. But he will never break his royal word. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So verse 18 finishes it off. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had told these things to her. So that's our passage. I don't have a lot to add now. Just, just a brief couple of thoughts. In, in, in one sense, we don't really need to say much. Hey? Like, it would be enough for us to go, hey, praise God, Jesus is alive. He's alive. Just let that land on us fresh this morning. He is alive. He did not stay dead. And that changes everything. Death, which has reigned from Genesis chapter 3 till now, has been defeated. From that garden to then this garden. Actually, fast forward, there's another garden. There's another garden-like image 
where the tree of life pops up again, Revelation chapter 22. Literally the last chapter in the whole Bible. Let me read this passage. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, what? The tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship it. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will not need light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We get returned back to a garden, kind of type paradise, where we'll eat of the tree of life and live forever. No more sin, no more death, life Immortal. That was made possible by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in our place. That he went to die because the wages of our sin is death. And he took the punishment and the wrath that we deserved. And he took it on himself. So that he would take our sin and we would get his righteousness. By faith, that becomes all of ours. Okay, So I want to ask a question. It's a pretty ordinary question, but it might be a strange thing to ask during a sermon. But I, I wonder how you're going. How are you going? You don't have to answer right now, but just how would you answer? How are, how are you? How are you actually? Um, you know, before you say, I'm good, how are you doing? Because in a group like this, I know there'd be all kinds of pains and troubles, anxieties, frustrations, concerns, fears, sufferings, loss, how are you doing? And to to ask a question from this text, why are you weeping? Need you be weeping? What difference does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus have on that, on whatever it is? What difference does it make that we have a resurrection, hope of eternal life waiting for us? that this place is not our home, that the best for us is yet to come, that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that is in store for us, that a day is coming and will come soon where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will be with our Saviour forever. Jesus has ascended to his Father and your Father if you're in Christ. To, your, to his God, and he ascended to your God. Why are you weeping? Sam Storms writes, he says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. 
I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. Live in light of the reality of an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord Jesus. Let me ask another question. This is, if you're, if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, maybe you've come in here and you probably weren't, maybe you weren't expecting to get asked a question, but here's my question for you. It's from the passage. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Actually, a lot of people do come to church because they're looking for Jesus. Like, in the sense, if he's real, I'd like to know. And so I'm coming to find out. That's how many people come. Perhaps you've been looking elsewhere for all kinds of things. You've been looking for meaning, for purpose, for fulfillment, for satisfaction in this world, for, for something that makes sense of it all. And so you've looked and you've looked and you go, man, I have, I have bought a lot of stuff to fill my soul. You know, I have bought myself a house. I have, I have done renovations. I have, I have made myself up, bought myself up in this career and I've been quite successful. I've got great grades here and I've got great friends there. I'm quite known on the online world and people know me and recognize me. I have built all these kinds of things. Ah, but you're still looking and perhaps you've come to church looking because none of that's worked and you come looking for Jesus another reason people come is because they're filled with guilt you've come with sin you wonder is there any forgiveness for me my prayer this morning is that you would hear just like Mary did you would hear his voice call your name by God's grace he would call your name this morning Everyone here who's a Christian uh, knows that they've been called by name by the Lord Jesus. There was a time, and if I knew you, I would I'd just say some names. Matt, you know, Alon. And, and he called your name. And you turned. Maybe one day you turned. And you, were, you probably didn't say Rabbanai. You probably said, Saviour, King. Lord, friend, hope, peace, joy, forgiveness. He calls names still. By God's grace, if he's calling your name this morning, turn to him. Throw yourself on his mercy. He rose again to give you new life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the most wonderful news that we have, that we know, and it's the best news in all the universe. There is nothing that compares to this. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his death, his life, all for us, so that we who may die may live forever and know you, life now, life eternal. I pray that would be true for all of us in this room, from the, from the youngest to the oldest. Thank you that you called us by name, and we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.